In terms of the element's name recognition, Palladium falls somewhere in the middle of the pack. You've probably heard it mentioned... somewhere before? It certainly sounds like an element. It's not as obscure as astatine or praseodymium, but it's not the first element on the periodic table that anyone thinks of either. And it doesn't enjoy the high cultural status of elements like neon or silicon. So palladium enthusiasts received a pleasant surprise in 2010 with the release of summer blockbuster Iron Man 2. The entire plot of the movie hinges on the element. Unfortunately, it gets painted in a rather unpleasant light. Iron Man is slowly dying from a chronic case of palladium poisoning. In fact, Element 46 is so toxic that Tony Stark decides to synthesize an entirely new element rather than find a way to mitigate palladium's side effects. Of course, that's only movie science. In our world, Palladium is actually renowned for its non-toxic properties. But as we'll see today, when it comes to Palladium, people seem pretty comfortable bending the truth for the sake of a good story. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're catching a show about Palladium. At the turn of the 19th century, William Hyde Wollaston was a successful doctor in London, but he was not a happy one. In a letter to a friend, he wrote, The practice of physic is not calculated to make me happy, and I have fully determined and now declare that I have done with it. What I shall do instead, I do not yet know. I feel no doubt of finding employment and turning my time to account in some way or other less irksome to me. For even if I turn waiter at a tavern ready to say, yes sir, to everyone that calls at any hour of the day or night, I cannot be a greater slave. That sounds a little melodramatic, but there's also something kind of noble about the sentiment. Who hasn't fantasized about quitting a terrible job, regardless of the consequences? Wollaston actually had the nerve to go through with it. Or at least it sounds noble, but Wollaston conveniently left out one very pertinent fact. He had recently inherited 8,000 pounds from a distant relative. In case that doesn't sound like an exorbitant sum, you should know that in today's money, that amount was worth roughly three quarters of a million pounds. He wasn't going to sit on his laurels and just live off that money either. He struck a deal with an old friend, Smithson Tennant. The goal of their venture was to find a way to refine platinum ore 
into pure bars of malleable metal. But the most notable aspect of this business was its secrecy. Nobody knew about this partnership, not even close friends or family. It was difficult to refine platinum at the time, so any such process would need to be invented from scratch. Maintaining utter confidentiality would ensure a monopoly over the platinum market, at least until someone else figured it out. There were other reasons for secrecy, too. At the time, almost all the known platinum reserves were in South America, under tight control of the Spanish government. Tennant and Wollaston were entirely reliant upon ore smuggled out through Jamaica. Their gambit paid off, figuratively and literally. With ample supplies of platinum to work with, Wollaston had little difficulty solving his chemical puzzle. He was now the sole vendor of refined platinum, and that was quite a lucrative trade. In no time at all, he made enough money to move to a palatial mansion on London's Buckingham Street, a home large enough to hide an actual secret laboratory. When one curious student asked to visit, Wollaston insisted, No, you do not go into my laboratory. I bring my laboratory to you. Away from prying eyes, no one knew that he whiled away the hours conducting clandestine chemical reactions that produced pure profit. It also helped that Tennant and Wollaston effectively snatched up any and all crude platinum for sale in England over the next two decades. All told, Wollaston produced 38,000 ounces of platinum ingots, enough to fill a generously sized bathtub. And for every pound invested, the partners made 6,000 pounds in return. With such exclusive control over the substance, Wollaston did more than make money hand over fist. He was also uniquely equipped to perform scientific experiments that were out of reach for anyone else. If any other chemist could somehow scrape together an ounce or two of platina, they'd use it all attempting to learn how to refine it, and get a slice of that pie for themselves. But Wollaston could afford to burn off a few ounces here and there on advanced experimentation. One day in 1802, while playing around with platinum residue and a little mercury cyanide, he uncovered a minute sample of a new, simple metal. Element 46. In the same way that ruthenium nearly got the name Vestium after the asteroid Vesta, Wollaston was inspired by astronomy. The asteroid Ceres was the most recently discovered heavenly body at that point, so he nearly dubbed the element Ceresium. But on March 28, 1802, Heinrich Olbers discovered Pallas, another enormous asteroid. Wishing to stay current, Wollaston named his new discovery Palladium instead. 
At this point, Wollaston felt a little more conflicted than your average chemical pioneer. He didn't want to publish his landmark discovery out of a fear that it would expose his secret business dealings, but he still wanted to let the scientific community know what he had found. Whether this was out of a sense of scientific responsibility or a desire to get all the credit is hard to say. Regardless, he decided upon a rather unorthodox solution for this conundrum. Wollaston printed up dozens of copies of a handbill, announcing in large letters, Palladium, or New Silver, a new noble metal. It is sold only by Mr. Forster at number 26 Gerard Street, Soho, London along with eight bullet points describing Palladium's chemical properties. Critically, what was not included on this flyer was Wollaston's name. It was completely anonymous. London's intellectual elite were considerably intrigued by this audacious act. Maybe they would have ignored it entirely, except that anyone could go purchase a few grains of the new substance at Mr. Forster's shop and verify the claims for themselves. Provided, of course, that they were willing to pay a price six times higher than gold. Wollaston's capabilities as a businessman at least matched his talents as a scientist. The idea was that someone else would back up his claims, informing the world that there was a new element in town, but would be unable to claim that discovery as their own. Perhaps in the future, once sufficiently enriched, Wollaston would shed light on his little ruse and ensure his place in scientific history. That's not exactly how it went down. All this hullabaloo caught the skeptical eye of one Richard Chenevics, an Irish chemist who loved a good battle of wits. He was sure that this was nothing more than some huckster's stunt, and he was out to prove it. In the Proceedings of the Royal Society of London, Chenevix wrote, The manner in which this object was presented to the public appeared suspicious, and while the sample purchased did indeed possess the proclaimed qualities, it was in fact nothing more than a simple alloy of platinum and mercury. He even took a moment to chide his unknown challenger, saying his chemical language and phrases sound more like alchemy, and maybe that person was a hairdresser at Islington. His rebuttal was confident, definitive, and entirely wrong. Presumably, upon reading this, Wollaston must have pursed his lips in annoyance. He couldn't refute Chenevix's findings without outing himself. So, he found another creative solution. He penned another anonymous missive, in this one, published in a Journal of Natural Philosophy, Chemistry, and the Arts, he offered a prize of 20 pounds for anyone who could synthesize palladium as an alloy of other metals, like Chenevix suggested. Again, 
20 pounds might sound like walking around money to us, but in 1802, that was the equivalent of 5,000 pounds today. The whole thing sounds remarkably similar to the cat-and-mouse game that played out in the newspaper between the Bono Gang and the French police we heard in episode 35, albeit with much lower stakes. Many chemists we've met before tossed their hats in the ring. Louis Vaucolin, Martin Heinrich Klaproth, Humphrey Davy, and many more. None succeeded. Begrudgingly, Wollaston finally attached his name to a scientific paper in 1805. He played coy about how he sourced his platinum, and the Royal Society of London didn't appreciate his shenanigans, but no one could argue with his results, now that he was finally showing his work. All that, and no one ever found out about his underground platinum refinery. He carried on for the rest of his life, becoming a substantially wealthy man, and making further acclaimed scientific discoveries. As for his rival? In his book, Periodic Tales, Hugh Aldersey Williams provides this postscript. Chenevix, disheartened by the episode, renounced science, married a French countess, and turned to writing historical dramas. This tale makes it sound like transgressions of scientific protocol are no big deal, and it might be worth the risk if a big enough payday can be had. I would be remiss to continue this episode without dispelling that idea. And, coincidentally, there happens to be another Palladium story that highlights the importance of rigorous experimentation, honest communication, and peer review. Palladium acts much like its Platinum Group neighbors and is used in many similar applications. However, Palladium is the best at one very specific task. It can act like a very effective sponge for hydrogen gas. A chunk of the pure metal can soak up an amount of H2 equal to 900 times its own volume. This quality has intrigued many scientists over the years, but none more famously than the duo of Martin Fleischmann and Stanley Pons at the University of Utah in 1989. The two arranged an experiment in which a piece of pure palladium metal would be infused with hydrogen. But not just garden-variety hydrogen. They were using deuterium. That's just a heavier isotope of hydrogen that possesses a neutron, in addition to its one proton and one electron. What they found was that their palladium got amazingly hot, far hotter than anyone would have predicted. Now, that's quite interesting, a result that would surely capture the fascination of any scientist. But like Wollaston, these two followed up with a decidedly unconventional move. Fleischmann and Pons convened a press conference, 
where they declared that they had solved the world's energy problems by inventing cold fusion. Cold fusion has long been a white whale holy grail of physics. We've discussed fusion plenty of times before. That's when atoms are smashed together, forming larger elements and releasing incredible amounts of energy. It's a phenomenon that we've observed happening in the hearts of stars, and it's the fuel that powers a thermonuclear bomb. Those are two environments that, you may have noticed, are rather warm. For decades, physicists have wondered if it might be possible to trigger a self-sustaining fusion reaction closer to room temperature, allowing us to harness the power of the sun here on Earth for a practically unlimited supply of clean energy. This kind of nuclear reaction, which would power turbines rather than leveling cities, is what we call cold fusion. And that's what Fleischmann and Pons claimed was happening with their deuterium-infused palladium, like so. The palladium was hoovering up heavy hydrogen atoms and packing them together so tightly that they were actually combining to form helium. They said that was why the palladium got so surprisingly hot. As an aside, this very public affair might have been the inspiration for Iron Man's palladium-fueled arc reactor. All the best movie science is based on just enough scientific fact to sound plausible, if you don't think too hard. Anyway, basically everyone raised a skeptical eyebrow at these claims. How is this happening? they asked. How come this doesn't look like what we'd expect from deuterium fusion? And most importantly, why can't we replicate your results? Fleischmann and Pons scoffed at such frivolous questions. They had no time to bother with doubting Thomases. They were on their way to ask President George H.W. Bush for $25 million in research funds. For what it's worth, modern consensus is that Fleischmann and Pons were not the charlatans they might appear to be at first glance. Rather, they were two enthusiastic people who found themselves suddenly thrust into the scientific spotlight and quickly got in over their heads. Fleischmann had actually wanted to publish their results in an obscure physics journal, like any proper scientific finding, but said the University of Utah wanted to claim priority over the discovery before anyone else could attach their name to it. And it was legitimately strange that their palladium got so hot, an effect that's gone unexplored until relatively recently. One Stanford professor offered this glib criticism. Tens of millions of dollars at stake, dear brother, because some scientist put a thermometer at one place and not another. The whole debacle was sort of the mirror image of William Hyde Wollaston's offense. In both cases, scientists had circumvented the traditional process of publication and peer review. But Wollaston had done so to remain anonymous, while the University of Utah 
desperately wanted their name associated with a scientific breakthrough. In both cases, a desire for financial gain outweighed the pursuit of knowledge. And in both cases, reputations suffered because of it. The field of science is no place to seek out fame and fortune, especially through the fabrication of convenient fictions. That is an enterprise best left to the realms of film and theater. Coincidentally, several renowned theaters around the world bear the name Palladium. From London to Los Angeles, St. Louis to St. Petersburg, Florida, plenty of cities boast a stage that shares a name with Element 46. They're often storied locations that have proudly hosted historic performances by legendary artists. That's true of the Palladium in New York City as well, but it's the only such venue to have lived a life as raucous as the performers who graced its stage. The building began life in 1927 as a magnificent 3,000-seat movie palace on the corner of 14th Street and Irving Place on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Back then, it was called the Academy of Music, taking its name from a venerable opera house across the street that had just been demolished the year before. It served as a cinema for several years, but by the 1960s, the times, they were a-changin'. The location was increasingly used as a concert venue for rock bands. In 1976, Ron Delsener took the place over, providing its new, elemental name and a fresh coat of paint. Acclaimed New York Times art critic John Rockwell was present for the rechristening, and in that Monday's edition of the paper, he commented on the many improvements made by the new management. The place used to be called the Academy of Music, and despite its dimly perceived associations as the one-time center of classical music in this city, the name had long since come to mean the sleaziest, tackiest hall in town. Some unregenerate populists professed to like the old academy, in that its launch remained true to the grimier spirit of rock and roll. But just because a revolutionary stereotype may be a filthy bomb thrower doesn't mean that one can equate filth with revolution. This observer found the old academy a foul sinkhole and welcomes Mr. Delsner's improvements. The changes were nowhere better symbolized than in the men's room. Boy, this place has changed, said one punk on Saturday. Yeah, answered his friend, it used to be dynamite. They weren't talking about the music. They were talking about the fact that the academy men's room used to be the biggest drug den in town, full of teenagers openly selling and imbibing more kinds of drugs than most people know exist. On Saturday, Mr. Delsner had two uniformed security guards loitering conspicuously in the men's room. No matter that, when asked by this reporter, one said they had just been told to stand there. The effect was the same. Drug selling was next to non-existent. 
While some dazed teenagers may have complained that rock and roll demanded a grimier spirit, the overhaul certainly didn't dissuade enormous acts from taking the limelight. The band, known as The Band, performed on that first night, and the stage later hosted The Ramones, Patti Smith, Frank Zappa, Iron Maiden, Bruce Springsteen, U2, The Clash, Kiss, and hundreds of other bands that were just as huge. The Palladium earned a reputation every bit as illustrious as venues like L'Amour and CBGB. In 1985, the building underwent another transformation. It remained a music venue, but it also became a nightclub. This conversion was conducted by the people who formerly owned the great-granddaddy of all nightclubs, Studio 54. It became a mainstay of New York's lively club scene through the 80s and 90s, and its walls were adorned with murals by Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat. With every iteration, from movie palace, to concert hall, to dance club, the Palladium only ever earned greater prestige. And then, like all the rowdiest parties, it abruptly came to an end. New York University purchased the building in 1997, and they weren't interested in holding concerts. The building was swiftly and unceremoniously demolished. Where the Palladium once stood, the school constructed a residence hall for the urban campus's burgeoning undergraduate population. Yet clearly someone within NYU's administration was a little sentimental, because the building was officially named Palladium Residence Hall. Perhaps its current inhabitants might salute the decades-long rager started by their grandparents before they turn on the spigot, pour the beer and swig it, and gaudeamus igit tour. You might be fortunate enough to live in Palladium Hall if you're a 19-year-old NYU student with a penchant for podcasts about science history, but that doesn't quite count as adding Palladium to your element collection. Fortunately, it's not terribly difficult to get your hands on a bit. If you picked up an automobile's catalytic converter within the last two episodes, legally, I hope, then congratulations! You've knocked out three elements in a row. White gold jewelry might contain any of the platinum group metals too, although it can be a pain to pin down exactly which ones are in your wedding band. It's a little easier to verify the palladium content of specialty surgical equipment and dental fillings, since those are objects that wind up inside your body and there tend to be strict regulations on that kind of thing. Regardless of where you find your palladium, this is another metal for which you'll probably need to pay a high price. Better to cough up sooner rather than later, though, because that price is probably going to go up over time. Just don't act like Ford Motor Company and get all caught up in the speculation game. 
By now, we're well aware of how reliant the auto industry is on platinum group metals. Back in 2001, the price of palladium was skyrocketing, and it showed no indication of slowing down. Quite the opposite, actually. In the prior decade, the price had increased sevenfold, and major global suppliers were subject to turbulent political forces. Ford assessed this landscape, and decided that the prudent move would be to spend a small fortune now to stockpile several years' worth of palladium, before the price rose to untenable heights. There's a certain undeniable logic to this approach, but for some reason, the people in charge did not consult their financial experts before making this critical decision. The threatened political disaster never struck, and auto companies invented more efficient ways to use less palladium in production. In less than a year, the market price of palladium fell by more than half. Ford had to admit to their shareholders and the public that their ill-informed bet had cost the company more than one billion dollars. We've learned a lot by studying palladium, but its most memorable lesson might be don't believe everything you hear. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. I'd like to especially thank Mr. John Rockwell for giving a reading of his New York Palladium Review just for inclusion in this podcast. If you haven't visited the blog in a while, some exciting things have been happening. Tarot cards based on the periodic table, poems inspired by chemistry, and as always, show notes for every episode. To see all that and more, visit episodictable.com. Today's show notes are available at slash pd. Next time, we'll polish up on silver. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton, reminding you that today's stories put a different spin on the old adage, publish or perish. Perish.